so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. As we continue our mini-series here on the podcast on our recently released volume, The Digital Public Square from B&H Academic, I'm joined by Bonnie Christian to talk about her contribution entitled, Should We Ban Pornography? Navigating the Complexities of Objectionable Content in a Digital Age. Today, Bonnie and I talk about the moral plague of pornography in our society today, as well as some of the difficulties in banning this type of content online. Bonnie is a journalist and author of Untrustworthy, The Knowledge Crisis Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community, as well as A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. She's a columnist at Christianity Today and a fellow at Defense Priorities, a foreign policy think tank. Her work has been widely published in outlets, including the New York Times, The Week, USA Today, CNN, and Politico. She's a graduate of Bethel Seminary, and her and her husband live with their twin sons in Pittsburgh. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Bonnie, it's really great to have you back here on the Digital Public Square podcast. Last time, we actually talked about your new book, Untrustworthy, uh, from Brazos, and about the rise of kind of misinformation and how we as the church think through some of those questions of post, kind of living in a post-truth society. Today, though, we're shifting gears a little bit. We're talking about your new contribution to our volume, The Digital Public Square, Christian Ethics in a Technological Society, where you tackle kind of a big question, should we ban pornography? Um, and obviously, there's so many contours to this. A lot of us kind of have gut level reactions of yes, we should or no, we shouldn't. And this one of the things that I appreciate about the way you tackled this chapter is you kind of walk through a lot of the complexities and you didn't do so with as much emotion as much as you went through kind of thoughtfully and logically kind of processing this. But before we get to that whole discussion, I want to hear a little bit about your background. Obviously, we've had you on the podcast. We know a little bit of your background. But what kind of puts you on this journey into journalism and specifically writing on politics, society, and even social issues like technology? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, yeah, thank you for having me back. Um, As far as how I got into journalism, um, I knew from a a pretty young age that I was interested in in writing for a living. Um, After I I, I started out being interested in in being a veterinarian, and then I found out you got to kill the animals a lot. So um, (laughs) that sort of put me off that. 
And I realized pretty young that it wasn't going to be like fiction. Um, and by high school, I was sort of intrigued by news weeklies and and looking at the the political realm as something where I, I was interested in writing. And so when I went to college, I majored in political science, um, worked in the D.C. area for a few years after school. And that was good in a lot of ways. And it was like sort of writing work, like communications type stuff. Um, but it wasn't really about the ideas so much as, you know, come to our events. Here's what we did this year, that sort of thing. And so I decided to go to a seminary to get a master's degree to sort of round out my educational credentials for um, especially commenting on like sort of the intersection of religion and politics, which is, you know, a perennial topic in America. Um, and so it was while I was in seminary that I started gradually building up a, a journalism portfolio and then moving into that full time after I graduated and also turning to work on on books as well. Well, you've over the years, you've written some really thought-provoking books, um, especially your last one that we talked about with untrustworthy and misinformation. Um, but as we shift gears a little bit, talking about kind of this idea of objectionable content and more specifically the idea of pornography today, What's really fascinating a lot of times in these conversations is that often, I think this is kind of a, um, an outworking of our current society and kind of the technological revolution, is that we kind of focus on the here and now, the immediate. But one of the things that you kind of rightfully point out in your chapter, but I think this is kind of true of a lot of your writing, is you show this is not a new question per se. We've actually been debating the idea of banning pornography or even questions of objectionable content for a long time, actually, in American society. But specifically, the rise of pornography, the rise of social media, and the rise of smartphones, where basically everyone has access to a smartphone at this point, there are some new contours and there are some new questions being asked, especially in the, the debate over pornography, which seems to kind of bubble up in kind of American society every once in a while. Every few years, we kind of have this big push or a new proposal or something like that. We're also seeing a lot of conversations surrounding the idea of protecting children online. Uh, that's kind of a, actually an interesting bipartisan push right now uh, in the D.C. area, but also in a lot of state legislatures about what kind of protections uh, should we be putting in place to protect our children online specifically. Can you give us a little insight, though, kind of where the American public is, kind of public opinion? Obviously, we don't base legislation or policy specifically on public opinion per se. But the public opinion about this debate over banning pornography, I think was kind of interesting and just something you pointed out. So how does, where does the American public sit in terms of public opinion that we know of? And then how does that, how does that, or maybe it doesn't really affect some of the debate that we're having today? Yeah. So there is a, there is, as you say, sort of a, a long history of legislation and especially jurisprudence on this subject. Um, and that, you know, I think many people who are perhaps coming to one of these rounds of conversation around banning porn or other objectionable content for their first time, um, they're not familiar with that background. And so it seems like, oh, this is something feasible. This is something we could do. When in reality, there's there's quite a lot of, of like law and Supreme Court cases on the subject that, that place real boundaries on what is realistically possible. What's interesting, though, is that one of the the big pieces of the, of this jurisprudence that came out of the Supreme Court is something called the Miller test. And that is something that's, it's a three-part test and it's used to define, to separate obscenity, which can be banned from pornography and other objectionable content, which is protected free speech under the First Amendment of the Constitution. And the Miller test actually is sort of pinned to public opinion. Um, it has to do with what a, a reasonable adult 
would find, you know, offensive and having no redeeming artistic quality. And so one thing, though, that that's crucial to know about this is that the Miller test is national standards, not local standards. So it doesn't matter what your town thinks, what your church thinks. It matters what just sort of the whole country thinks. And so, yeah, national public opinion on on pornography actually is important in a way that, you know, for some other questions of bans, it wouldn't be because of how the, the court handled this. And so, I you know, I don't have numbers memorized off the top of my head, but the, the gist of the public opinion is that, um, you know, Americans very much agree that, uh, you know, child pornography, for instance, should be illegal as it already is. I believe, if I recall correctly, there is majority support for saying people under 18 shouldn't be allowed to look at porn. Again, already illegal. But the majority of Americans do say that if you're over 18, it shouldn't be illegal for you to look at porn, assuming, you know, we're not talking about, um, again, some other category of, of already prohibited content, like, uh, again, child porn or porn that's non-consensual. Um, if we're talking about content made with consenting adults, most Americans say if you're over 18, you know, maybe I don't like that stuff, but it should be legal for you to see it. One of the things that when I had approached you about writing this chapter, I remember you saying, um, you said, you know, I'm a little pessimistic about banning porn. And you know that, right? But that's one of the reasons I actually wanted to include you in a volume like this is while I think we might disagree on some questions, especially maybe the role of the state in some of these questions and uh, some of the nature of the Christian ethic. By and large, though, I think one of the things that I love about your writing is that you help us to dig deep and to be really thoughtful about it. You pointed out, even in your chapter, many things that I was like, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, that's a really interesting question that I think we have to take into account. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you contribute to this volume, because you are thoughtful and you tackle these issues um, in a very honest way. And one of the ways that I appreciated how you did that in this chapter is that you actually started by making the case to ban pornography. You said, here's the case. Here are the three or four points of why we, why society should ban pornography. And you kind of get into it a little bit before getting into your actual argument and showing some of the complexities and stuff. Um, so to model that, I actually wanted to do that here on the podcast as well, uh, to ask you, what are some of the arguments that are made to ban pornography and what may be good in those arguments that we need to consider in this debate? Yeah. So usually, and as I wrote in the chapter, it, it's a it's a pretty simple three-part argument. And so the, the first part is, you know, porn is evil, and you can make that case in, in lots of different ways. I think for, <laughs> for your audience here, I probably don't need to make it in any great depth. But, you know, th these are sort of like very basic level, like long-held Christian sexual ethics to, to oppose making and viewing pornography and, and to argue that it has, you know, real lack of moral value. Uh, and then the second step from there is to note, and, and you've alluded to this already, that the technological change, that, you know, there are real differences in the accessibility. And because the media has changed, the obscenity of the pornography that's available to us as to compared to, you know, certainly even like 30 years ago, but especially if you think back to, to like the pre-video era, right? Like if, if you're only distributing pornography in terms of like pictures, like what we would now call pinups or erotica for the most part, there's just, it can only be so bad. It's a, it's a photo or maybe it's even just a drawing. Like, you know, it, it can only be so bad. We would put, for instance, um, ancient pornography and, and like the, the ancient Romans certainly had pornography. We would put those in like books about Pompeii that we let kids read, right? Because there, there are limits of the medium. Whereas now we have 
video and the possibilities of video for what you can make, um, those, those possibilities are much greater. And it's also a lot more accessible. Um, you know, you don't have to go to a brick and mortar store. You don't have to go through the trouble of getting something mailed to you. You can get it to it on your computer. You can get to it um, at a, it's easier for people who are under 18 to access it, even though they're not supposed to be doing that. Um, and so I think it's particularly the, the changes in the tech um, and the way those have affected the content itself and its accessibility, which is producing these cycles, as you say, of conversation around this and, the, and this sense of like panic and, and we, we need to do something about this. And so the third step is really just putting those two together and saying like, so, you know, it's evil. It's more accessible than ever. It's worse than ever. We got to ban it. Yeah. And I know often this debate will also center around children and kind of the effects of pornography um, and the sexualization of children. That's not just a debate in the pornography, but it's also in questions of gender and sexuality issues and discussing those in schools and things like that. Now, while this conversation is obviously focused on pornography, those others are really important questions. And some of that we touch in the volume as well and some other chapters, but kind of tying in back to the idea or the detrimental effects of pornography on children. What are some of those things? As you've kind of studied and thought about these things, obviously this isn't the first time you've written on this conversation either, um, as you've kind of studied some of the history of it. What are some of those kind of detrimental effects of pornography use, especially on children? Yeah, I mean, this the from my understanding, the academic literature on this is um, somewhat contested. I find compelling though, at least the evidence that for kids, especially pornography exposure, especially at that young age, is linked to a lot of you know mental health troubles. It's linked to inappropriately early sexual knowledge and activity, and and things that can last quite long term. Um, you know, it's not necessarily just your kid sees porn a few times in childhood and then they you know clean up their act or you put stricter limits and and they move on, it's, you know, there can be durable effects, uh, especially if we're talking about the more extreme stuff and exposure to younger ages. Yeah, and there's that's one of the things is there is some contested literature on that. Um, but it, it, a lot of it seems to kind of make sense in some ways of how this will affect children, especially so young, being exposed to many of these things, notwithstanding the long-term effects even on adults and kind of prolonged exposure to these things. I think we have to make sure and remember this conversation isn't just about protecting children, but also thinking about the long-term detrimental effects on all of us and kind of living in a more sexualized society. And I think it's safe to say that, you know, even if you maybe aren't as persuaded by the evidence that the detrimental effects are so consistent and widespread, there's certainly not going to be a positive effect, most likely. <laughs> and again, especially when we're thinking about like the more violent and explicit stuff, like this isn't making things better for you. Well, so one of the things you do in the chapters after you've kind of made this case to ban pornography um, and some of the main arguments that are used in that, you kind of shift your conversation for the rest of kind of the bulk of the chapter into a case against banning pornography. And I think for some, when they hear that immediately, they're like suspect, like, I don't know what's going on here. Um, I don't think this is a good argument or type of thing. But it's funny to me, even those who I know disagree with you ultimately, I've heard from many who have read the book already and read specifically your chapter, how much they benefited from it, actually. Uh, it's because you point out some things that maybe we aren't aware of in the debate, maybe some of the long-term kind of conversations that have had been having or some of the new proposals that are coming down the, the pike. And one of the things that is you're kind of making this shift a little bit is you kind of lay out kind of the current landscape of the debate, um, especially considering some of the most illicit and illegal aspects of pornography that are already illegal. 
And I think that's something you rightfully point out. So I was going to see if you could unpack that a little bit, because I think when people say, you know, maybe I'm not making a case to ban pornography, somehow I'm okay with child sexual abuse, or somehow we're okay or morally indifferent to underage consumption or to some of the most violent and heinous things, or even some of the contested literature about its connection to sex trafficking. So I wanted to see if you could kind of tell us a little bit about the current landscape and some of the things that are already illegal and that by and large, all of us agree should not be accessible or available online today. Yeah, I started the that sort of section with that because it, it occurred to me like, you know, again, someone coming to this for the first time may not be aware of how many laws are already on the books limiting what's available. And so we've we've mentioned a few of these things already, but like child pornography, underage consumption of pornography, already illegal. When we think of when we're thinking about is this pornography that I'm seeing was it produced is it is it a situation of trafficking is it a situation of rape well human <laughs> trafficking rape sexual assault other sexual coercion again also already illegal also illegal are public broadcasts of pornographic content in places where kids and uh, non consenting adults might be able to see them so like you can't put a pornographic billboard up on the highway you cannot broadcast porn on network television at prime time. There are already quite a lot of these limits, even if we're thinking about more modern problems like revenge porn, which is when a couple is dating, they break up um, one party who has video or or pictures of the other in compromising situations, uploads them to to a porn site for revenge. Uh, There there are already laws on the books that let you be criminally prosecuted for that kind of behavior. Um, And so... What we're considering, and, and a, a lot of these these conversations get blurred. People will say, like, we need to ban born to protect the children so children can't see it. And yes, of course, it happens that kids see porn, right? Like, that is that is part of the problem. But in terms of, like, the legal situation around children viewing pornography, already illegal. And so you have to think about the real scope of the legal conversation is quite narrow. It's should we let consenting adults watch pornography of other consenting adults. And of course it has these outside effects, but the the specific legal conversation is narrower and that matters a lot for what becomes legally possible. One of the things that you kind of already have alluded to with the Miller test um, and some of the other legal debate is the complexity, I think is the nicest way to say it, of defining pornography which I find really fascinating. You kind of talk about a little bit of making kind of a private case later on in the chapter. We don't, we won't spend as much time talking about that, about private companies banning pornography. But I do find that a really fascinating kind of debate even because as I've interacted with many technology companies, um, especially in the policy front and et cetera, it's really interesting to see the divergence and kind of even diversity of opinion about what is pornography, how do we define pornography, and do we even allow pornography or even nudity on our platform? So much so that you have Meta's Facebook and Instagram that has a pretty strict ban in many ways. They don't allow nudity on their platform. And many of the conversations that have, I'm having with their teams is kind of how do we define it? Because you've had this push toward um, empowering women, especially those who have been abused or those who may have had life-altering cancers and mastectomies and reconstructive surgeries and things like that, or even the breastfeeding movement will say, no, we should be able to post these things and promote this as a social cause or something to that effect. 
So those who have very strict policies not allowing pornography and nudity are being challenged about what they're not allowing. And then on the other hand, you have other platforms, maybe like Twitter and maybe some other social platforms who almost seem to, they're not only okay with it, but maybe even relish in it in some sense, that it's very accessible, it's very easy to access, um, and it's something that kind of proliferates much of their uh, much of their platform in some sense. And so I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about this kind of quandary over defining pornography. I think that's one of the most fascinating questions in this whole debate is how do we define it? Because if, if we can't define it, it's going to be really hard to ban it. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is very tricky. And I, I mentioned this Miller test, and this is a big one because, again, obscenity can be based, can be prohibited. Um, non-obscene content can't, it gets constitutional protection. And so I think many people reading the Miller test, you know, which, which has language like, does the content appeal to prurient interests, i.e. as an erotic, lascivious, abnormal, unhealthy, degrading, et cetera. You would, I think many people would look at that and say like, okay, yeah, that seems like porn would be included, but, and I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but the conclusion of the courts, and there's, uh, there's, this has gone to court a lot of times, uh, is that a lot of material that is pornographic that pertains to sex just does not meet that standard. Um, and a big part of it, again, turns on that specification that the, the community standards are national. And so you have to think about our country as a whole. And it's also a three-part test, and the content has to fit all three parts to, be, to count as obscenity and to be eligible for prohibition. And so pornography just typically doesn't meet the, the bill. And another interesting aspect of that, you know, you might say, well, okay, could we at least ban pornography that simulates rape or that we, we think it might actually be a rape and it was filmed and, we, you know, we can't know for sure because we don't know who these people are. But there was a, a Supreme Court case in which uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, quite conservative, ruled that violence is not part of the obscenity that can be regulated and so that means that, you know, just because it, it depicts rape or abuse, it, that doesn't mean that a piece of pornography is, is going to fall into that obscenity category. So there's, there's just a, a, a lot of, uh, I think, to some degree, deliberate ambiguity about, about this, because as a country, we just don't agree. We don't agree on what, what counts as bad enough that uh, it needs to be put in that bannable category. Yeah, and obviously there's a lot of moral and legal complexities here, but also there are questions, more philosophical questions even, about the role of the state. When we talk about the role of the state in legislating morality even, and some of those are differing questions across kind of the ideological spectrum from kind of more liberal views to more conservative or even libertarian views. And while we don't have to go down that road specifically about the role of the state in these things, I think you do bring up some really interesting questions about living in a modern liberal democracy. How do we navigate some of those? And so over the years, and you kind of highlight in your chapter a few of these different proposed ways of going about it. So this is not new to the conservative conversation, even specifically more religious conversations surrounding this, that there are these various proposals that have come out from issues of age gating, which we already have in many ways. You're supposed to be 18, but let's just be honest, it's it leaks like a sieve in many ways. Um, it's not hard to get around that if one has the, the knowledge and the desire to do it. Uh, but there is questions of age gating or even uh, creating certain separate zones on the internet, which 
I think may have some merit even um, of creating these kind of separate zones on the internet to limit access to it as much as possible. Now, that doesn't preclude black market from coming up. There's already a black market for pornography. And even if it's widely accepted in society, there's already a black market for some of the more, more deviant and illicit content as well. But then you also have had successful campaigns even in the last few years of removing user-generated user-uploaded content and pornography from places like Pornhub. This happened in 2020, where there was major takedown of pornography content on the platform itself. Now, you rightfully note, even some of the rules and standards that were placed there weren't exactly maybe the strongest protections. But how do you think about some of these proposals? Like, how do we think about navigate, maybe not a complete and total ban, but maybe limiting or restricting access in certain ways? But I want to make it a little bit more complex because I know it's not a complex question already. How does that then tie into questions even that we talk about in the volume over Section 230 and the right to moderate content and these platforms and free speech and things like that? So I know that's kind of a big question, but just kind of take it as you will. Yeah. So, I mean, on the I think these these sort of lesser ideas, um, more incremental ideas, they do probably stand a better chance of surviving legal challenge than the outright ban, which Again, I'm not a lawyer, but from everything I've read, you're just it's just not going to happen with like the Constitution we have with the country we have. And I mean, like the the people we have, a full ban is just not going to happen for the foreseeable future. Something the, the zoning idea is interesting. So the idea is that you would you would say, okay, you can have porn on the Internet, but it can only be at perhaps like a dot XXX domain. And this idea was introduced. I don't know if it was if they were the very first to think of it, but it popularized at the very least in a Supreme Court dissent. And so the idea is like, you know, it's, it's coming from the court to a degree, like, you know, maybe this could, could withstand legal challenge. There's also, you know, zoning of, of like adult bookstores in the real world is prohibited already. So they're permitted, excuse me, already. So there's, there's this precedent. Uh, something like that, I think, could work on the legal front. But yeah, you run into a lot of practical problems. Um, I'm sure you've seen, there have been stories, um, articles in, in recent years, and it's frequently in the context of, context of revenge porn, where a video will get uploaded and, uh, you know, sometimes even of an underage girl, and she gets it taken down from one site. She's like, okay, this chapter of my life is over. Like, this was a nightmare, but it's done. And then a month later, someone messages her and says, isn't this you? Because it's been, once it's out there, it's out there for good. And it can be downloaded unlimited number of times and it can be uploaded unlimited number of places. And so the zoning analogy, I think, breaks down to a degree. Um, we want this to be like a one-to-one comparison maybe, but it's just not. Like a, a physical bookstore can be confined in a way that online content simply cannot. And so it might work on the, on the legal front. In practice, I'm pretty pessimistic about how much good it would do. And I mean, even with examples like the, the Pornhub takedown where they took down lots of videos, those videos, I'm sure, did not leave the internet. People had already saved them. They've already uploaded them elsewhere. It's easy to go after a really big target like Pornhub where like even someone like me, you know, knows the name Pornhub, right? It's not easy to go after the millions of other sites whose names don't have that kind of recognition. And so I understand the appeal of the zoning idea, but I think it's wishful thinking that it would work. Other ideas uh, that are sort of like more incremental ones, like one is that, as you mentioned, the, the age gating thing. Again, it, in practice, I, I don't think there's a lot of good evidence that it's going to be super successful. 
and then if even if it is successful, like you you would have to to tie it perhaps to a payment method, perhaps to a government ID. I think the government ID would be the most likely to be effective, right? Because you can borrow your mom's credit card. But uh, then you have a situation of we're asking people to give their government IDs with their addresses and all of their you know personal information to people who operate pornography websites, like the the potential for for leaks and for even blackmail like the consequences are that the unintended consequences are huge there I think and so a, a lot of the proposals that are maybe a little bit more workable on the legal front run into these big these big problems on the practical side and I think the the idea of carving an exception to section 230 so section 230 is is basically a law that says in short, uh, a company like Twitter or Pornhub, for that matter, which hosts user-made content, is not legally liable for the content that they, the users have put. And they can perform moderation to take down things that they don't want without assuming that legal liability. So, you know, Twitter can delete abusive posts without taking ownership of everything that's on there. The difficulty with saying, okay, well, we need to to say uh, porn is an exception to Section 230 is once you start weakening Section 230, you're, you're, you're opening the gate to more exceptions, right? Okay. And it's not impossible to imagine making exceptions for things that uh, we, we don't find so objectionable as pornography. The, the Section 230 really is responsible for a lot of the sort of like the open and freewheeling internet as we know it, such as that still exists. But it's also worth noting that Section 230 already includes an exception for uh, federal crimes. And so I think you could, for instance, make it a, a federal crime to share non-consensual pornography, non-consensual pornography, and then that would allow that to be prosecuted without doing a carve-out of the broader protection itself. There are downsides to that as well. Essentially, that uh, you're expanding Washington's police power. You're you're making a federal crime, um, a new federal crime, and a new expansion of of the federal government's authority to police our behavior. And, and traditionally, the Constitution accords police power to states and municipalities, not to the federal government. Um, so that is, I think, a consideration there. But I would say, if we were going to go the Section Two Thirty route, it would probably be wiser to do something through the criminal federal crime exception that already exists rather than going after section 230 itself. Yeah, and the whole section 230 debate's really fascinating because again, it's one of those issues that we've long debated the merits of 230 as well as some of the maybe dangers of 230 as written. Um, for many who don't aren't familiar with this, it was a it was added to the Communication Decency Act in 1996 right as the internet was just starting to take off. Um, and so many will argue that these are the 26 words uh, that created the internet or created the modern internet at least. Um, and so there's some really helpful content, not only in this volume, I encourage listeners, if you're interested in the 230 debate, obviously Bonnie has a little bit in her chapter. David French, uh, who wrote a chapter, a couple chapters before this, uh, wrote a really helpful one on free speech and content moderation, specifically tackling 230, as well as Nathan Lemer, uh, who we had on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago talking about technology policy, specifically U.S. centric, because many uh, may not totally realize that Section 230 is a U.S. law. 
meaning in the European Union and other districts and municipalities, 230 is not an applicable law. And so there's also some interesting debates about the international front, which is one of the things that I love about a volume like this is that we have a lot of different contributors with a lot of different perspectives and thoughts coming together to have what I think is a really important conversation. And one of the things from folks uh, reading and reviewing the volume, as well as when I was reading and reviewing, one of the strongest and I think most compelling parts of your argument is actually the effect on human content moderators. This is something that rarely makes is part of the conversation, at least not just about banning pornography, but about the idea of content moderation in general and about some of the most dangerous and illicit and gory and violent, but notwithstanding even pornographic material and objectionable content, is the the role of human moderators. Because I think sometimes in conversations like this, we just assume, well, we have AI and it can do a whole lot of cool stuff and it'll just keep all that stuff from getting on the internet. It may keep a lot of it from getting on the internet, but it never uh, is perfect in its application. Not only is it just a tool and it in some sense is Unable, it's not perfect in itself, but also imperfect human beings created it. So naturally, there's some imperfections in it as well. But you point out the role of the human moderator in these content and some of the trauma uh, that many of them already face, much less if we go to something like pornography. Can you talk to us a little bit about the role of the human moderator, specifically in content moderation? Yeah, I think you're right that we assume that AI is handling it in a lot of cases. But as you will find out if you have some content of your own unfairly flagged, there are, there are people involved. Um, users will object if you have an over-eager over AI that does a lot of false positives and takes down a lot of innocent posts. And so what happens is companies, social media companies, other companies, they use human moderators. And this, as you say, is it's not terribly well covered. Um, an outlet called The Verge did a handful of reports the big one was in 2019, where they looked at the basically the work lives of Facebook moderators. And it's just, it's an incredibly terrible situation, um, what these people go through. Most of them do not work there very long, often only a few months, a few weeks. Some people quit very quickly because they can't handle it. They are smoking weed at work. They are having sex in the bathrooms. They are doing, they are like joking about suicide. They are becoming radicalized by the content that they're seeing. It, it has terrible effects on their lives, on their moods, on their like ability to be normal human beings. And a lot of people don't last very long and they end up in counseling, they end up with PTSD. And you would think like, okay, well, why isn't it, we don't see that happening, for instance, to police officers who investigate like child pornography cases. So why is it so much worse for the moderators? And the answer is that uh, if you're you know, a detective investigating a a child pornography case, frequently there's going to be some sort of resolution. You're going to catch the guy who did it, right? You're going to to actually change that situation. But people who are moderating on Facebook, they have no, they have no real control. They have no real way to improve what they're encountering. And so they're coming across the same piece of terrible content again and again and again, taking it down again and again and again and again. And it just keeps spreading. And that that day in, day out exposure to just the absolute worst dregs of the internet. I mean, that can't help but affect them. And so as long as we continue to demand moderation, um, but not moderation that takes down our posts by accident, this is where we land. Um, and when we're saying like, oh, we need to ban pornography, we need to have these stricter rules. 
in practice, we are asking for more more people to do these jobs. And there's just, at this point, there's just no way around that. Someone has to do that work and it's going to potentially ruin their brains for life. Yeah. And that's one of the things I was I was really grateful that you brought out. There's a book that I read a few years ago. I think it was entitled Ghost Work. Um, I think it came out after maybe some of that reporting about the content moderators and a lot of the effects and the PTSD and trauma. Um, but it was a longer kind of study and look at the toll of content moderation on human moderators, which interestingly enough, isn't just you know, a center down the street. Often this is across the world, often in places that are low, kind of low economic development that um, are poorer countries often, uh, where this work is lucrative in some sense. Um, And so there's an incentive to do that. But as you said, a lot of these moderators burn out in days, sometimes even in hours, much less in weeks or months. Um, And even those who may stay for the long haul, you can imagine what is happening to them. And so, again, I don't think that this, I think we need to take into account these type of issues, these variables, these consequences, and some of the unintended consequences that we haven't even talked about that you bring out in your chapter, as well as some things that you may not even talk about in your chapter. And that's one of the reasons I'm grateful to have you not only here on the podcast, Uh, but to be a contributor in this because you're a really thoughtful voice. Um, Again, I've said we may may or may not disagree at times. I still am just kind of thinking through some of the complexities on this, Um, but you've been very, very helpful in my own thinking, my own development, as we seek to apply our Christian faith and more specifically our Christian moral understanding and ethical tradition to a lot of these really pressing questions, notwithstanding what you mentioned earlier about how quickly things can be duplicated and how they kind of hit the internet and kind of go into a million different places. I remember even uh, when I worked in the technology industry um, in college, I remember uh, interacting with a gentleman. He had a problem with his computer, and we opened up iTunes to fix it, and the entire library is actually just pornography. It's all been downloaded. Now, it was shocking. It was embarrassing for him. It was very, very awkward for myself. But that just is a very small way to show how easily duplicatable and and how easily this stuff is shared and kind of how ubiquitous it becomes very quickly. But one of the things that we've done on each of these podcasts is we've kind of wrapped them up a little bit is to, one, encourage folks to go and grab the volume itself. Uh, Your chapter specifically, I think, is worth diving into. So I encourage folks to grab it, the Digital Public Square, Christian Ethics and Technological Society, and your chapter on banning pornography. But I wanted to ask you, since we've written this, so interesting note, um, in a volume like this, when you write something, not only about kind of Christian ethics and things, there's kind of thought process and development of your own maturity over the years, uh, but specifically on technology issues, how quickly the technology industry is changing and even how quickly the technology itself changes. So I wanted to see if you could uh, tell us a little bit, maybe your own thinking and development over this, or maybe some new proposals or new ideas that have come up since you've written this, and kind of how you think about that as you kind of end out your chapter talking about pursuing the nature of virtue. Yeah, I, I think the the single biggest thing that comes to mind is I just read a forthcoming book called Meganets, which is coming out um, in March of 2023 that I'm reviewing um, for The New Atlantis. Uh, it's a very interesting book more pessimistic than even I am <laughs> about tech stuff. But one of the things, and the, the author is a, was formerly an engineer for, if I recall correctly, Microsoft and Google. So, you know, he knows wherever he speaks on the tech front. And one of the things that he argues is that the AI is not going to catch up 
and save us from the problems that we're having with, he's speaking more broadly, but I, I would say like with the moderation issue. And it's particularly, it has particular trouble with anything to do with human language, does a little bit better with images, but language and, and I think also video is, is tricky, particularly for dealing with low quality video, just detecting what's in the picture. Uh, and so I think if anything, I've become maybe since writing this chapter, more pessimistic about the possibility of developing AI good enough to handle this for us. I think human moderators are going to continue to be a thing for quite a while, maybe maybe forever. Uh, if we continue to want to keep this content off of sites that are accessed by the broad swaths of the public. And so if anything, that pushes me further in the the concluding in the direction of the concluding remarks of the chapter, which are about developing virtue on a, an individual and, and also especially communal level um, in, in the context of a, a church community or a Christian school or, or friend group or what have you, because I just don't think that there is some exterior force, whether legal or technological, that is going to come and save us and do this work for us. I think at best, not best at all, but at best we can outsource our choices here to other people, to these poor moderators who have to deal with all of this stuff. And that doesn't seem acceptable to me. And so I, I, I think that reading more about the limits of AI has, has only pushed me more towards saying like, this is a matter for virtue. It is um, individual, of course, but also it really, I think, and this is the case with a lot of tech stuff, even with when we're not dealing specifically with obscene or, or pornographic content, the communal aspect is aspect is huge. And I think about this, you know, my my kids are really young, so we're not at this stage yet, but thinking about like, well, when would you let them get a smartphone? And what's going to be the single biggest factor and when they start asking is what do their friends have? what What is the communal norm? And I think it's the same here. Like the, the, it's not just what are you doing within your own family, but what are you doing within your community, within your church? What is seen as normal in terms of access and uh, device use, and um, what kind of restrictions and what kind of uh, sort of like moral tastes, if you will, are, are seen as like the standard ordinary thing among you and your friends? Uh, and that's a, a matter of development of virtue, and it's not something that even the best designed law or, or um, you know, AI, mo- AI moderation or what have you will be able to do for us. Yeah, and I think that's a really helpful point as we kind of wrap up the conversation here. I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about in this debate and that we should be talking about in this debate. And so I think your chapter goes a long way of kind of encouraging more conversation and I hope folks as they read it uh, will not only be challenged, but also kind of spurred on into further conversation because one of the goals in writing and producing a volume like this is to spur that conversation along. We know that we can't say everything in three or 400 pages. There's so much more to be said and needs to be said. And hopefully this is one way that the Lord uses this to kind of spur the conversation within the church about some of these really pressing moral and social issues of our day. Um, But Bonnie, I want to thank you, one, for your work, uh, specifically for joining us here on the podcast today and your contribution to this volume. You've been a big encouragement to me and a big challenge to me in many ways and helped, I think, made me a better thinker and even a better ethicist. And so I just want to thank you for your work and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you again for having me.
Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Bonnie and learn more about her contribution to our volume, The Digital Public Square, in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonbacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production is provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.